We love the World Economic Forum here. This is a World Economic Forum promotional podcast, actually. And like AI and technology is supposed to be like a god almost, you know, like we're supposed to submit to it. The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. Welcome back to the podcast. Mr. A is fired for not posting our podcast, for not editing it. Um, That's all. So we're going to end the podcast here, and that'll be it for today. (laughs) New podcast has just been... (laughs) I'll have a podcast of my own that's never on time. Ben can have one that's on time and sometimes we'll be on each other's podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's how we're going to do it. We'll be constant guests on each other's podcast. Just one will be on time. The other one won't be. Yeah, I I need to split off from this so I can have my own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about it. Doing my own thing, like also just being like, you know what? I need my... There's this clip of Alex Jones I want to play all the time. He goes, I want money, or I need money. (laughs) So I just want to play that all the time. I need money. We could play it on our podcast. I just like how you are like, I've been thinking about making my own podcast as well. You can't even keep up with our podcast, but you're like, I've been thinking about starting another podcast. Well, I feel like when I think about it, I, I think what I end up thinking about is more of like a... I guess it's still podcast, but like the streaming kind of thing where you just go on and you're just like, fuck it. I'm going to do it live. Just do it live. Just mm. let my life be consumed by it. You know, I don't know. I Other podcasters must. I know so many of them, like the people have day jobs. So I'm like, how are you doing so much? How like, are how they, are they preparing? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What are they doing? Because it takes it actually takes a pretty decent amount of work to make it. Interesting, unless there's just more interesting people, like they're just capable of having conversations that are just more interesting. They're actors. Like, yeah, kind of. Or they're just, everyone's just funny. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think there's that part of it too. We listen back to this, but I listened to Joe Rogan talk to this guy recently and I was like, this is the most boring conversation I've ever heard. Um, I can't even believe he published this. I can't believe this is the most popular podcast in the world. I don't know. It was this guy. I don't even know. He's a comedian. It wasn't funny. I I didn't think it was funny. I don't think it was funny and I don't think they're interesting, but they thought they were both very funny and very interesting. And I was like, it's neither of those things. Wait, Um, was it, was it Brian Callen? I think so. Maybe. Wow. That's so funny. Cause I listened to a podcast with him. Uh, the, uh, hold on. Conspiracy social club, AKA deep waters. AKA Highway to the Danger Zone, Brian Callen and Sam Tripoli. It has a little bit of the vibe of what of ours because Brian Callen is like pretty anti conspiracy theory. And then Sam Tripoli oh, is yeah, it was Brian Callen. very pro. Uh yeah, he's a comedian, Brian Callen. I I don't know if I would like him Whatever. without Sam Tripoli. Like with Sam Tripoli, he's good, but he's he wants to have like the most basic point of view on stuff. It's so weird. It's almost like he likes being like well, that very was the basic whole problem, yeah. mainstream 
belief in something. Boring. It's yeah, it's pretty funny to Boring. listen to him battle Sam Tripoli because Sam Tripoli also sounds crazy. But then when you hear Brian Callen say stuff, like Brian Callen will just say things like BlackRock has no power over anything. Oh and God. it's like, how could you be managing like a quadrillion dollars and have no power? Like that doesn't even make sense on its face. Like, are you telling me if I gave you a quadrillion dollars to invest on people's behalf, you would consider yourself powerless? Like I just, Oh my God. It, blinking white it's man. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Anyway, whatever. Enough of that. I brought some world economic forum clips to play because we love them. Um, we love the World Economic Forum here. This is a World Economic Forum promotional podcast, actually. Those are my people. Um, and they don't have any power, just in case anybody was wondering. No power whatsoever. Zero power. Okay. Here we go. Um, this. Oh, there's Mr. Klaus Schwab. Yeah, this one's interesting. So this is Klaus Schwab talking at a World Economic Forum event. I love that he talks like a villain. That's like my favorite thing about him. Here we go. But since the next step could be in, to go into a prescriptive uh, mode, which means um, uh, you, you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already uh, predict what, uh, predict, and afterwards you can say, why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be. Can you imagine such a world? That's all. That's all. It was just a little clip. But he says, "Can you imagine such a world? Can you imagine predictive AI in being applied to elections?" He's like, "You don't even need to have elections now." On the face of it, I'm like, "These are interesting points to make and things to think about." But uh, coming from you, Klaus Schwab, I don't think they're just little thoughts you're having. It's some. It sounds almost like, "Hmm, maybe, maybe we could get rid of these elections." I mean, I don't know what these people's whole. I don't even know what their vibe is. Like, what is their agenda? But I do know that they talk crazy like this all the time. And if they're being, like, legit, like they, like these are genuine thoughts they're having, it, it, very, it really does seem like they, they kind of think of AI and, like, the coming future that, like, they, they, like, really them, like, what they want to usher in. Yeah, is like a like a like like AI and technology is supposed to be like a god almost, you know, like we're supposed to submit to it, almost, you know, like because we've already for years they've been talking about putting like AI in places of like judges, juries, that kind of thing, like because it will be better at discriminating or like replacing doctors with like AI because well after all they're better at diagnosing and you know et cetera et cetera. Oh my god! Yeah. And I have told I have huge problems with those. Those the, like that uh, theoretically, I don't even think that that works, but that's how they talk about it. Well, yeah. So that's the thing I wanted to say about this is like, so even if you were to say that, yeah, a, an AI could predict the outcome of an election, the only reason I feel like that's true is because of like media and people being on the internet and propaganda and whatnot. And like, because otherwise it would be very difficult. Or because predict. the elections are already predetermined. <laughs> or that, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I was thinking, yeah, because, you know. Like, they've already made the, they're like, oh, well, we we told the AI what we wanted, and it said that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could just, like, show people things on Facebook. It's like the, what was that scandal, the AI Analytica, Cambridge Analytica, or whatever, and, uh 
Yeah, I mean, it's like that on steroids. But the only reason you can do that is because you're basically feeding people the information that causes them to do what you want them to do. So, yeah, I mean, if we didn't have that, it wouldn't be predictable. Well, do you do you know about, like, this is like a random topic, but I think it, it could be really important in regards to, like, human like psychology and, like, what's going on because it, this concept that I'm about to mention seems like highly developed and like not new. Like it seems like people have been doing this forever. But you know, what do they call those people? They're I think they I think it's mostly termed mentalism or something. It's like oh. it's sort of like being a magician, but it's a little different. So I've seen people do these huge elaborate like I don't know what you call them. I guess they're still called tricks or like magic tricks but you know you never know how tricks are being done unless you're told and no one ever tells you how the trick is pulled off but from what has been explained on some of these that are like kind of mind-blowing because it's not like oh you thought the ball was under this cup but i moved it so fast you didn't see it you know or there's a hole in the table and you couldn't you know it's not like that kind of a trick it's like i saw one a long time ago so i'm going to get the details wrong but the person there's like a camera following them they like get in an elevator they go down some hall they do this they do that whatever and they finally meet with the mentalist guy and then the guy's like i know like draw a picture or you know i'm totally fucking this up because it was years ago but you know he basically something like draw a picture and then let's both pull a picture out of our pocket at the same time and then he like drew the same picture as that person Oh, you know, or, or something like that. And it's like, how did you get that person to do that? You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and the explanation is that from from that particular episode of whatever it was I was watching, they if this if this is true, like they could have just been pulling our legs. But it basically looks like they were able to expose this person subconsciously to a series of stimuli. And that if you prompt the right question you can it's it's Mm -hmm, a it's a mm -hmm. mix between being able to predict what they're going to do but also to cause them to do the thing you're predicting and it seems like it works pretty freaking well and the person that it's being pulled off on has no idea that it's happening to them right now if that science like so if a mentalist can do that and they can do that reliably like over and over again to like just anyone on the street how could you not employ that methodology in just every version of media we have? Social media, flicking through TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, mm. the TV channels, Netflix, all this. I mean, you're just being constantly exposed to these stimuli that you don't really know what's in there. And there, we, 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 a lot of people do know about like predictive programming. Yeah. Where they're kind of setting the stage, you know, within the media to like get you to soften up for something to come down the road or to uh, react a certain way to a certain thing that's going to be pulled off, you know, down the road on the world stage. So I don't know, but that seems like this, some of this AI stuff seems like it falls into that category. If this is even a category at all that I'm just kind of making up on the fly. No, that's super interesting. Yeah. Being exposed subconsciously to something and then, yeah, it, it being elicited by a conscious question or something. And then you, are kind of surprised by that. But the person who was, you know, subjecting you to the stimuli is not surprised because it was their plan all along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so to the power thing, here's another clip. Um, 
of another economic forum person. So let's uh, hear what he has to say. Politicians need to understand, and sometimes we are faced with these kind of challenges. It is better to take today decisions that will eventually be not popular, but it will be essential to be able to shape the public opinion itself. So that was another short clip. But what did he say? So he's like, it's important to take decisions today that are not popular, but will shape the public opinion itself. Your decisions as a politician, a powerful elite, they don't need to be popular or good for the public. They just, you actually shape the public opinion. That's what he's saying. So yeah, kind of to the point, it's like- I think I just said that. That's mental. That's like the mentalism literally, thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, Klaus Schwab doesn't have any power. Like these people, they're just saying like, oh, they're talking about the idea of manipulating elections. It's like, no, they're literally saying like, you know, as a leader, you don't need to care about what the people think. You need to shape the public opinion into what you want it to be. I mean, we could at least point out that these people are obsessed with the like worst stuff, you know, like they're obsessed with like, they're obsessed with mind control. Basically, they're like, how can we just do whatever the fuck we want to do and and screw everyone else? Like, and how do we basically how do we do shit we want to do and get away with it? Like, that's lit. Like, they're obsessed with talking like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's so, Brian, and I don't we're taking the clips maybe out of context, but still. Sure. Well, I mean, there's so many things like this. You don't even have to, like, dig to, like, find them saying crazy shit like this. Um, but, yeah, it's like what Brian Callen said. It made me think um, as much as I react on him being boring a second ago. Um but he said this thing, he was like, well, if you really want a true democracy or representative democracy, he's like, would you rather have the, the, 20, the first 20 people in the phone book ruling the country or all of the staff at Harvard? And he's like, and it's tempting to say all the staff at Harvard, but he's like, but that's not how democracy works. And I think that that's an important point is that I think we get allured into this idea of like, well, we'll put the most qualified people into the positions of power, into the government, but not realizing that that's not really what's best. Like rule by an elite class, like literally a technocratic society is not best. And it's not what is good for the people. It's not rule by the people. It's rule by uh, elites, literally. <laughs> I mean, it is a technocracy, and and what also it is is, it what you get at least is this whole phenomenon of revolving doors, where from like the top of industry and then like back into like the top of you know government institutions. Like so, you have CEOs or board members of pharmaceutical companies, and then all of a sudden they're like the head of the FDA and stuff like that. You know, mm -hmm, CDC, mm -hmm. and then they're back in pharmaceutical companies. So the people that are setting, they they think there's no problem with doing this. Of course, they don't want to get caught. They don't want it to be brought to attention because it looks slimy. But they think that they're, they probably think they're doing like God's work because after all, shouldn't someone who's integrally right. or in, intimately involved in the pharmaceutical industry be involved in the you know, they would have the expertise to be involved in regular, like the regulatory agencies regarding pharmaceutical 
industry. But right. That's what it, they think. And that's the argument like, that they it make. It seems weird because there's two, there's like, yeah, there's two ways to think about it. One is like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the other one is like this intellectual, like kind of chin scratchy. Hmm. Well, I mean, you might have a point there, but it's like, what do you think people are? Like, do you think these people are good people? Like, they're different than right, exactly. Some con, like they're all just people. You can't do that. They're just like, as you fallible just, as you. And but that's what they do, and that's yes. what we have. Yeah. No. Exactly. No. And it's scary. And they've got to, and they have a, sh- they have a, a, they have a lot of money and power and prestige riding on those relationships because that's what those are at the highest level, are positions and relationships. So if you go in from Pfizer being like the the CEO of some pharmaceutical company to go regulate and you your peers your cohorts your your people are pharmaceutical industry people and you know and they know that these two institutions big pharma and pharma regulation FDA, yeah yeah they're dependent on each other so if i make the right decisions at the FDA you know, and, and all my buddies are sitting there going, God, you, you know, we've got, we stand to lose or gain millions of dollars here. Like, we'll cut you in. You know, this would be good for all of us. I mean, how do you, that's, that's just peer pressure right there. How do you, you expect that that, that there's no corruption just because they went to fucking Harvard no, or because exactly. they had a CEO position or, I mean, what do you think is happening? No, the temptation is way too great. And I think that people- Brian Callen. Yeah, people underestimate the temptation of doing something perverse once you're in power because we're, we never hear anyone say anything about l- radical empowerment or giving power back to the people. It's always about how we can amass more power so we can enforce the decisions that are best for you from the top down. We can enforce them upon you. And I think that that is the hubris. That's the, the sin of, and the temptation of those people. It's like, well, when you elect people who are quote unquote experts, the temptation is that you've literally validated the idea that, well, they are the expert. They do know what's best. They should be deciding for everyone. And then you give them the power, and what do you think they're going to do? Well, they're going to try and decide for everyone. Right. And that is not the kind of government that I think you want. I think you want a government where people can you know, have self-determination decide for themselves. And so that requires someone who's going to empower people to make their own choices, You know, which is not the quote-unquote expert who the qualification for them being the leader is that they should be deciding for everyone. You know, that's the fundamental problem, I feel like, with technocracy and the kind of politicking we have today or whatever. Well, within that question that Brian Callen's trying to pontificate over, you know, the there's a couple assumptions in there. One assumption that he's making right off the bat, and Brian Callen does this is exactly the kind of thing he falls for. And I don't even know if you could convince him not to fall for it. But the one of the assumptions is, well, the guys from Harvard are geniuses. Like, they're really smart. They're smarter than anybody well, else. Well, to be clear, better, he wasn't saying I mean, we should have the Harvard people. He was saying we should have the regular people. I know. Oh, okay. I know, but that's right. But I think that he... I've listened to enough of him and Sam Tripoli go back and forth that he vacillates... I think without realizing it, it he has to he has to think about it. I whereas I don't really have to think about that, you know. But to him, it's an interesting question. To me, I'm like, well, I think it is a question for a lot of people. Yeah, right. 
And, but for some people like myself, that's a stupid question. I'm like, I, I knee jerk on that. Like, no, you no. like, no, we're not just going to, should we just like the question? Cause the question simply put is, is technocracy better than democracy? Like <laughs> bad question. Yeah. So, but the other assumption there that he's making, so not only is the assumption Harvard guys are smarter than everybody else, but there's also the assumption that the guys from the phone books are dipshits. Right. And the implicit like conclusion here is that since we have a democracy and it's just phone book guys, it's a bunch of dipshits. So first of all, I'll say, one, we don't just have phone book guys running things. In fact, we have lifelong politicians to get into politics. You have to have a bunch of money, be able to raise a bunch of money. You already have to be someone with a either a lot of money or a powerful a powerful network and ability to network. So you're already kind of rubbing shoulders with the right people, rubbing elbows, whatever people say. And and I think it's wrong that I mean, sure, if you just pick random people from the phone book, maybe there you have a bad shot there of getting someone qualify but sure even the elites that we have today are not doing a good job i mean we have so many idiotic policies so right but and there's people there's plenty of people in the phone book too that are let's just say like just the world is full okay the world america the united states is full of like regular joes that are you know not that this is like the great metric but that are like millionaires because they're industrious they started a company they worked hard you know, there. So to randomly point to someone in the phone book, you actually do have a chance of pointing at somebody that's not just some dipshit. Right. They're they're intelligent enough. I mean, I wouldn't say even like our parents. You know, they're just upper middle class, regular, regular, regular people. And I'm not necessarily saying they'd be great in politics, but I'm I'm like, but they're the kind of regular mom and dad for Senate. Exactly. But they're just like regular people that are capable of thinking. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't. This is my whole thing. I don't want anyone to really have enough power. There should be no real authoritative positions that have enough power that can affect your life dramatically because of this exact thing we're talking about. That basically mm. what we're what we're saying without saying is that everyone's an idiot. Everyone's an idiot. Right, exactly. Well, you don't want anyone just making rules for everyone. Yeah, the other thing too, if you did really randomly pick people out of a phone book, uh, you might get really humble people, which would be a really big benefit because one of the problems with our society is like, yeah, I mean, the people who run for positions of power are those who want to be in control, which is a, that's a big problem, you know? Like, <laughs> I would like someone who doesn't really want to be in power uh, in power, and that's maybe one of the benefits of a monarchy. It is could, that yeah, the it prince, could almost be like a draft. Yeah, it's like you were born to this. Maybe you don't want this, but the crown rests on your head, and sometimes that's a good thing, you know. Yeah, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah, yeah. Well, too. Yeah, it's everybody can point to you, and it'd be like, People, well, you know, off with the head if you screw it up. Whereas today, it's like everybody's pointing at one another, exactly. and it's like, who? <laughs> it's one of those memes or something. I wonder like if that is a better system because you, I mean, what the problem is you do end up with a kind of caste system of sorts. So you have the monarch who I guess their main power is to levy taxes and that kind of thing, but it's for the good of the kingdom or the good of the, the all. And then underneath the monarch, you always have those who the monarch needs 
and relies on. These are the merchants and the traders and the rich guys, you know, the rich families that basically pay them, like we kind of still have, you know, basically pay the majority of the taxes. And you really, as the monarch, can't piss these guys off too bad because you're separate. You're the monarch and they're another class. They're the industrial class or whatever you want to call them. And they're the ones you have to worry about. They're the ones that will go to the next level down and say, listen, well, first they go to their buddies that all the merchant class and they go, <clears throat> this guy's fucking pissing me off. We don't like off, this okay? guy. Someone else needs to be king. I don't want to be the king. I want to keep running my spice business, okay? Making a million dollars a day. But this guy's taken half and he's not doing anything good with it. And that's a big problem. So we're going to figure out how to get rid of this guy. And then they can go to the next level down. And that would be us, I guess, the working class, and say, look, the king is fucking things up. You know, we get our spices from you people. We're trading them and making the big money. But, you know, we can't pay you anymore. You know, we're going to things are going to get rough because this monarch and you have this whole corrective system there. Yeah. It's corrective through violence, but what's the? You start to try to think about the dynamics of how things work, and you wonder what's the like. Where's the fail point there? Is it is it because there's a power structure? But if you go down the Jordan Peterson line of thinking, the you know he would you come to the conclusion that like you really can't avoid some kind of and he the people like Jordan Peterson want to want to say that it would all be better if it was just meritocratic. You know, if it's all just based on merit and ability and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that might maybe is some there's something true about that, but is it the system at all? Is it this because people like me who are way down low on that hierarchy, we need jerk to, you know, I'm I'm not like there's a lot in common between the poor, even though there's a big huge current bifurcation between the poor and the other poor, like the left poor. And the the not left well, poor, like the radical, they're doing that divide and conquer. Poor. Yeah, draw the power or the lines between the people, exactly not between power and the people without it, but between races and genders and yeah, all these dumb things. But there's a commonality there, which I think is like palpable on either side of that at the bottom level, which is this power problem. You know, this like hierarchy problem. Like we're on the bottom, and it feels like it's those guys on top screwing everything up. And the problem is this weird, they've they've really done a genius job at dividing. It's definitely, we talked about this before, it's definitely falls right in line with this Bacon, that Bacon's Rebellion that we talked about mm-hmm. where there was a conscious uprising of the poor, black and white, and then a conscious response to that, an, a directed, on-purpose response by the elite to divide that group of poor people along ridiculous lines that make no sense black and white and said hey white poor you're closer to us than black poor are so don't do that uprising thing again you need to defend the yeah and i don't like because so again we've also talked a lot about ancient greek uh problems and they the elite often like the plato types did not like the they hated mob rule. It scared them because mob rule, the mob always at some point called for a tyrant. 
Right. It gets a little wild. And then the tyrant was yeah, bad. Yeah, well, you know, it was always wasn't bad. it Plato, too, who said, like, something about or made the observation about the military state? And it's kind of interesting because that's what's happened today, too, seemingly, is that, well, eventually, you know, the kings or whoever was in charge, the emperor would amass, like, a military protection unit or whatever. And then eventually that entity would grow so much. And because those are the people with the actual power to destroy something— that those would be the people who actually had the power. And so eventually you just have a military state um, and because they're the ones with the, the real power to you know, do stuff and take over and whatnot. And I think that that's you know, sort of akin to what we have today too. It's like we literally have like rule by a military industrial deep state seemingly. Well, I mean, the way that our government, I guess all governments, but ours is getting to this point in a bad way. And I think has been at this point for a long time. What is government? You know, ultimately, in my book, it's the trade-off. It, you, it's literally a deal, a struck deal, where like you as the people being governed have a governing whatever person or body, and you're making this, this weird trade-off where they are allowed to do violence against you and you're not allowed to do violence against them because everything that the all power that's enacted is ultimately enacted by violence so if you don't pay even like if you don't pay your taxes like what ultimately what happens to you ultimately you don't get to make that decision ultimately somebody's coming to your door they're coming with guns mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. coming with power they're coming with cages and they're putting you either either shooting you or they're putting you in those cages and that's an enactment of violence and that's just for doing something nonviolent like not paying taxes and that's the trade-off between that is what government is it's a it's a outsourcing of violence to an entity that's been given by you the right to exact that violence against you whether you like it or not. And so when it gets out of control, like it is now, then you have no, there's nothing you can do. And you just, this is where I think you get that quote that was at Jefferson or whoever, that the tree of liberty needs sometimes be watered by the blood of tyrants and patriots mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. like that. It's like, cause it seems like that, that line of thinking comes through this line of thinking, which is like, how do you really, can you ever really avoid this, this balance between order and freedom like how do you actually balance that is and what is the right balance and what happens over time is like the second amendment is such a good litmus because they want those guns so bad you know they're always acting like making stories about how important it is blowing things out of proportion making things seem one way or the other and every other country almost on the face of the planet, they get the guns away from the populace. And I think that that's a huge mistake based on this dynamic that we're talking about, which is if all you have is your hands and you're literally through being coerced through violent threat of violence for your taxes and the taxes are going to literally, they this is true, they're going to pay for ammunition, firearms, guns, and all of this stuff for the government, and oftentimes for domestic governments, for police forces, for the IRS buys millions and millions and millions of rounds of ammunition every year. The IRS. Yeah. And then they want 
you to not have guns. You know, it's like they they collectively know that this is a violence, a balance of violence and who's able to wield it. Well, I think, yeah, you really have to start wondering. And we one of our earliest episodes was about rights that we never published. <laughs> but uh, you have to start wondering, like, what are rights? And I think you can easily go down that rabbit hole and arrive at the idea that might is right. Like the right is just the ability to take something. It's the might that you have to take it. Um, and rights are really just words in the wind. They're, you yeah. know, they're only real in the sense that you can make them made manifest, like by, by taking whatever it is that you're claiming the right to or defending whatever it is that you're claiming you have the right to. And so... Yeah, it gets really tricky. Yeah. And then I think, too, you have the, the... That's why I always say I don't even know if rights exist. Yeah, well, you have the thing where people will say uh, that the paper that we were talking about was uh, The Dark Side of Rights uh, by Honora O'Neill, I think. And the the dark side of the right is that every right has a corresponding mm -hmm. responsibility. And so your right to something is someone else's responsibility because kind of that proposition we just laid out, which is like right is actually the might to secure something. And so if... In order for you to have it, it has to be secure, which means it's someone else's responsibility. If it's not your responsibility, then it's someone's. And uh, often it's the government or the government holds someone else responsible for giving you that right. Such if like you had a right to health care or something, it would be a doctor's responsibility to give you that health care. Or if you had a right to universal basic income, it would be someone's responsibility to provide that income to An you. obligation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they have an ob a corresponding obligation. Yeah, which is... Which is why you have to be really careful with that conversation. We throw rights around that the idea of rights around just all right. the time, <laughs> like that. We're just obsessed with like I know my rights. This is the rights of trans, the rights of this, the rights of that. Just like you don't even know what you're talking. About. No, no. That was a Fauci quote. You you do not know what you are talking about. No, these people literally. I want to say that for the record. They do not know, <laughs> and that's the crazy thing. It's like people. I feel like we're so entitled, like people say this all the time or whatever. It's, you know, it's sickening to hear me talk about it. But it really is like, I think people really have no idea what's going on. So I've been listening to this book, um, The War on the West by Douglas Murray. And we bought the audio book and we've been listening to it. And it's so mm. interesting because he provides a counter criticism of all of these attacks that have been laid at Western culture, calling it colonizing and white supremacist and racist and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, so there's just been this, you know, he was like, the West was due for some corrective, you know, history and study and whatnot. He's like, but the pendulum has swung way too far in the other direction. Um, and he makes a lot of interesting points in that book. But one of the things he talks about is, you know, how we like to paint America as this, or people, these activists, whoever, political organizations, governments, businesses, schools, higher institutions of learning like to paint America as uniquely racist. And he's like, the fact is that the world, the world had racism going on. There was slavery everywhere. And often it was divided by racial lines or ethnic lines. And um, he brings up this point and I just found it so startling. And he was like, you know, so we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, and he's like, but there is study into trade, the eastern slave trade, where slaves were going into the Middle East 
um, out of Africa. And he's like, and there are estimates that put that slave trade more than the transatlantic slave trade. And he's like, but we don't know about it because often what would happen in those Middle Eastern countries is they would take the slaves and they would castrate them so that they could not reproduce and that, you know, they would not interbreed with people and whatnot. So he's like, so there's no recorded history of these people or their descendants or anything. And I just thought, like, if that's real, like, you can't even imagine, like, I can't imagine what what would it be like psychologically to live in a world where that was going on? Like that was common practice. This was happening in the millions, you know? And then for people to be like complaining today about like, there's not enough people who have brown skin in the Avengers movie. You're like, what are we talking about? Like, what? (laughs) Like there are so many more important problems. And this is such a far cry from a real problem that it's hard to talk about. And he makes the point too that there is real slavery still going on today. He's like, I have seen real slaves. I've talked with them. I've documented their stories. He's like, there's still slavery going on in countries like Mali and Ghana and Africa right now. And he's like, and it's just sad to think about all the time that we spend talking about superficial racism, how much better our time could be spent if we spent it trying to solve the problem of the actual racism that still exists and slavery that still exists, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, some people think that that's kind of the overarching narrative or the overarching story of all of human history hmm. is, is like a kind of a slavery story. And if you think about it the in a particular way, I don't want to say the right way, but in a way you could come to that conclusion pretty easily. You could even almost like unravel it to the point of, you know, not direct slavery, but like our understanding, like we even have like things in the nomen, like in our common parlance, like uh, being a wage slave. Right, right. And that, you know, like have, has, has there really been any escape out from the boot? Has it just changed forms? Uh, I think we see it most starkly. We don't, no one ever looks at this because it's, they say it's too complicated for us to understand, but like the financial slavery. Mm-hmm. We briefly touched on it, I think, in like our last episode, but just like even the rich are kind of beholden to the system that requires them to not be free fully, you know, to do certain things. Uh, sanctioned activities with their wealth, you know, you can't you can't even put your money in a bank because the bank doesn't work that way. The bank doesn't guarantee you get the money back. Right. It's not even like there's literally it's like written into law that you basically only get to get a quarter million bucks. So if you have fifty million bucks, figure it out on your own, you know. And then so all your money is always tied up. Right. Well, that's so interesting because. On principle, they literally destroy the value of your money because of lending fractional reserves or whatever. Like if you put your money in the bank, they lend at one-tenth. So you're like, we only need to keep a tenth of this around and we just invent $9, you know, for every $1 you give us. So it's like they literally destroy the value of your money immediately when you put it in there on the hope, the dream that things will be more profitable, more Didn't productive Didn't they get the rid future. of that too? Yeah, they recently got rid of... Um, 
I thought they even got rid of that reserve requirement. So they got rid of reserve requirements. Yeah, yeah. So in 2020, they got rid of. I think the. Yeah, they they went from 10% to 0%. Um, that's a fact. I looked that up recently, but I don't know how that affects fractional <laughs> oh lending or whatever. God. Yeah, I don't. We are in economic free fall. If you haven't noticed, um, I think people haven't noticed because things are seemingly fine, but. Um, I think if you scratch the surface, things are not so fine <laughs> immediately upon further inspection. Well, it's, it really is become like the whole system is becoming of an illusion. Literally, though, you know, like it's already an illusion. With like, is money worth anything? Paper, currency, digital, dollar, you know, I mean, not even not digital currency, like literally, like it's just numbers in a computer, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm. But now we're to the point where it's like, if you have a zero percent reserve requirement, you don't meaning you don't have to have like I'm. Let me see if I get this right. You don't have to have any money yeah. to lend money. Apparently, you could just lend any money. You just make it up. Just be like, we don't have any money, but we we're adding uh, numbers to your where you get the money machines. is us. <laughs> yeah, and then you have even though we don't have any. We'll tell you we have it. We'll tell you you now have it. And then you have to pay us that money back plus interest, which is the same as like the dollar as it's always been. It's kind of been, like even the Federal Reserve is kind of functions on that premise that like every dollar is created at one dollar plus X, which is the interest on the dollar because the Federal Reserve is loaning out all the dollars. It's a kind of make-believe. No, I mean, like, what is this? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I heard too recently the Federal Reserve needs to get uh, a trillion or two trillion in bonds or whatever in the first half or quarter of the next year because that's how much they need to raise funds or whatever, which is... Uh, quite scary because that's what a bond is is like you're paying you're essentially loaning the government the federal government money and they're giving you an IOU in the future and the fact that they need 2 trillion of that is a uh, a little a little shocking um but yeah i mean in general we've got public debt private debt yeah it's a mess it's a mess anyway it's totally a mess i have another clip um which oh good we can go into i thought this would be interesting this is a little skirt, but it might be slightly related to what we've been talking about. But let's see. So this is Jonathan Paggio. Paggio. Uh, he talks a lot to Jordan Peterson, but he's like this interesting sculptor. He makes sculptures, like religious sculptures and art. He's an interesting guy, metaphorical thinker. If there's one sin that represents the modern world is the sin of acidia. It's different from all the other sins. It's almost like all the sins can be kind of contained into the sin of acidia. So what is the sin of acidia? What is it? The incapacity to pay attention. It's not just laziness because the sin of acidia is also the sin of a busybody. Someone who is uh, sitting around and is bored, that's the sin of acidia. Who wants to see change, that's the sin of acidia. But also sloth in the most in the more general sense of laziness of incapacity to do the things you need to do you can't imagine let's say stopping in silence and prayer and so your mind and your your activity 
moves from one thing to the other. You always need to be distracted, right? That's the sin of acidia. You're bored and you're wondering what to watch, or you absolutely have to watch something. The kind of overpowering fatigue that you get when you need to do something. It's, acidia is often called the demon of uh, the noonday demon, right? I need to be distracted. I need to change. I need a new car. I need new clothes. I need a new TV. I need all of this is all acidia. So it's like, if you want to understand the sin of our world, it's acidia. <laughs> and what's the solution to it? Uh, you know, I mean, the fathers say it's patience, stillness and patience. But yeah, what do you think? I thought it was so interesting. I've never heard of uh, acidia, but I was like, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm looking into this right now as we speak. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, what is that? What am I? Am I an ass? I'm an ass. I like, I'm all wrapped up in my sin of acidia. Uh, it's so But I, I was thinking about this recently. The It's like the, what do they say? The idle hands or the devil's workshop. You know, mm. and I agree with that big time because I can get very idle handy. And what's interesting about, you know, idleness in the human sense is that you, like he said, you could it also you could call it a busybody. Like you're not really idle. You're you could be doing lots of things, but it's almost like they're the wrong things. You know, you're not focused um yeah but we you know this is weird because we just talked about this on another podcast where we were talking about we used the example of i i, I brought up the example of like all the cats that are all running around in my yard all the time and that 90 percent of the time they're just like sleeping and i was like we were kind of pontificating <laughs> whether or not this is better you know and maybe that's not acidia like because they're not piddling and maybe consumed in it maybe it's it's a it's a stillness and a calmness and not a uh franticness a restlessness yeah not a restless weirdness because i'm reading so on wikipedia it says um by the way the cia edits those articles i found that out recently uh one hundred percent. Not sure if they're completely concerned with the Greek nomenclature, but it's possible. <laughs> um, but it says it uses the word uh, negligence has been variously defined as a state of listless or torpor of not caring or not being concerned with one's position or condition in the world. In ancient Greece, hmm. akidia literally meant an inert state without pain or care. Early Christian monks used the term to define to define a spiritual state of listness listlessness. And from there, the term developed a markedly Christian moral tone. In modern times it has been taken up by literary figures and connected to depression. Oh, that's so interesting. It's almost like an emptiness or whatever. And that's, yeah, that's so what I thought when he said all that. I was like, well, you know, it's very akin to the kind of apathy that people seem to have today. And the other thing that it reminded me of is I saw this meme because it's, it's funny. And uh, it was like, uh, doctor, I think I have depression. And the person says, no, I think you're just uh, paying attention. 
And I, it's just funny because I feel like when you start paying attention to the dire situation of some of the things going on in our society or our community, it really can be jarring or whatever. And I think that that is the temptation is to almost not pay attention to like shut out the problems so you don't have to deal with them. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll go back to this notion. I suffer from this acidia. Hmm. I mean, sometimes it consumes me and it, it really sucks the life out of me. And it, and it, it's like a self, what do people say? Like a self licking ice cream cone or something like I'm, it, it creates this kind of cycle of, you know, it could put you in a depression to have nothing to do or too much to do, or not knowing what to do, or not caring, or doing a lot of things, but not caring about what you're doing in like a grand sense. And I'll notice, I know this firsthand because what I'll do is like really benign things can actually have a dramatic effect on me, like change things dramatically for me. So like, I'll sell, so I run the sawmill sometimes and I'm just getting my standing back again on this barely, like barely. I just got the new mill and everything and I kind of like relisted some things for sale online and I sold, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff over like a really pretty short period of time. And even that, because that activity was there's something about that activity for me that was, it's almost like without me knowing it, it was like, I'm going to use this word. It was like righteous because I was contributing, you know, to the things that like basically the household, like to the, the greater situation that I really find myself in and my relationship and the, and the miniature little community and all that. Just by having a few days of, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go sell this, I got the call, I'm going to go here, I'm going to sell this, I'm going to, and it was like, it. I mean, immediately with this just short little couple meetups with people kind of changed my psychology. I can do the same thing, It could the same kind of effect can arise for me even just by uh, not letting the dishes in the sink pile up. Or by actually sitting down and reading, going like, I want to, I'm going to like actually read a chapter of this book I've been trying to read for like six months. Like, how can you try to read a book for six months and not make any progress? Like, that just means you're a a retard. Like, what's wrong with you? It's Yoda. Like, why can you not read the book? It's so easy. You just look at the page and start reading it. There is a try though. Like, once you start, like, so I started reading that book again and it was bothering me because I, my mind was doing that wandery thing where I'm like, I can read a whole shitload and think of something totally different, like not even co- mm-hmm, comprehend mm-hmm. anything that I read because I was literally having a secondary stream of thought. But eventually the other day I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to keep reading. I do not care. And eventually I got out of that cycle and I read and I read and I read, and I read a good deal. You know, I was like, okay, boom, got it. And I actually was engaged in what I was doing. I was actually engaged in the piddling, you know, it was just reading, but at least I was, engaged in it you know and it was a little boost i mean it's mundane and dumb it's just reading a book but like it 
I felt like a better person just because I was capable of doing that. So there's something to like setting your mind to something and setting your, it's more than just setting your mind to it, but like just getting out of that, whatever that is and engaging, I guess that is it. Like not being listless, like not being idle, not being wandering, you know, really going on the journey. Cause that's, isn't that the difference between like the, the wanderer and the journeyman, you know, you're mm, one has a name, a difference one there. doesn't. Yeah. One life kind of happens to, and the other one kind of happens to life. Mm. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing I wanted to bring up was the progress part, like the progressivism aspect of it. I thought that was so interesting because he was like having to see progress, like having to see change, like you're bored, you can't sit still, can't be present. And I thought that that's so interesting because we talk about this all the time. It's like the progressivism, you know, sin. It's like, just do more progress to fix the progress or whatever. And uh, yeah, almost like that being rooted in this same kind of idea of like, well, I, I'm not present. I'm not able to be still and calm and engaged with what's happening right now. I am almost bored. I'm disconnected from what's happening and I need to see the progress in order to feel to avoid the to avoid the present in some sense that's kind of like what what it seems like the sin of acedia is even that stuff to me though seems like a piddling of sorts like you think of like so it's like oh well like oh we'll just like oh okay well problem you're like let's just hire a diversity officer like oh and then they can like piddle around and they're like unqualified to do anything within business but like that we hired them so that they can hire black people and gay people and trans people and women people and just like, ooh, piddly, piddly, piddly. Like, is there really a conviction uh, and, a, and a journey goal-oriented reality that's trying to be manifested? I mean, by some it is, but by the majority of people, I feel like it is piddly because it's not the kinds of, it's not the kinds of, this maybe is just, just opinion here, but like, that's not the kind of I don't even, I think it's, even that's like missing it. Like it seems haughty, like it seems laudable, like as a theory almost, but what is it really? You know, like, what are you, what are we really doing? It all seems ephemeral. And mm -hmm. I feel like uh, even like marches and protests kind of give that vibe, you know, where you're just like, what I never understood. I'm like, what are people doing? Do they, do, do people really think that the people like the elite or whoever it is gives a shit that you're standing around wasting your time holding a sign? Like, does anyone care? Because I can, I'll care. All that ever seems to me like a protest, all that's ever seemed to be good for is to show other people, not the elite, just to show other people, if you think this too, you're not alone, you know? Right. So if there's like people handing out pamphlets about how abortion's no good, the best that's doing, you're you're pissing off one group, the elites don't care, and the only people I feel like that's really having the intended effect on is the people that are like, oh, I you know, I believe that too. Like I'm at least there's other people out there like that. Like you just feel a little less alone. But Yeah. And I'm a hypocrite because I don't know what I'm doing, you know, ever. I'm the worst at this shit. And I spread myself thin completely where I start a hundred things at one time. And I don't know what, I don't even know why I do it because I think it's because nothing, 
is, uh, and this might be like a, a thing in society that I think a lot of people suffer with this, even people that are like not in the weird ass position that I'm in, like people like you maybe even who like are doing it right. You have the job, you know, you're, you're, you're being responsible, but you have this, you could still end up with this feeling that like, it's it's still similar to someone like me who's going kind of nuts this direction that direction this direction that direction because what is what's causing that weird angst i think a lot of times and proven by the fact that i was like whoa i'm great i sold a couple pieces of lumber is that you're you're kind of like when is this what where's this going like is this what's going to pay off like what's worth my time what am i you know what i mean yeah. like i feel like even people in really responsible situations have that feeling where they're like oh like i'm doing my job i'm making the money i'm doing responsible i'm saving and all this and i'm like but they still a lot of people end up with that thought of like it, what what's the payoff here like what am i really doing where am i really going what is my real journey here and because a lot of people like Johnny, who we talked to is like, yeah, I just said, fuck all that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just do it all away because I was like, that's not cool. That's not me. You know, I'm I got another mission. And I think that. I was cautionary. I gave him a cautionary note to say, be ready for this to be bullshit, too. In a way, I'm saying if Johnny's listening, I'm not being rude. I'm just I talk like this, <laughs> you know, be ready for that to be bullshit, too. But at the same time. I like applaud somebody for going, no, I had a conviction. You know, I had a real feeling. I had something that felt important and I'm, and that's what I'll put my, I'll put the grindstone to this thing and I'll put my head down on that. And I feel like that can be more fulfilling than, you know, other stuff. I met a guy not too long ago that I've, I claimed was a possible millionaire. I, I couldn't tell it, but he gave the millionaire vibe, but he was doing weird stuff like living in a, storage unit and, st and i was like what are you doing dude and he's like well about this about that i'm doing this i'm doing that i'm like what is you know but you know he kind of left behind the other life and was like i have this new thing i'm doing and that to me he he probably finds himself i would imagine in a place of acetope or whatever the fuck that word was Acidia. yeah Acidia. but but you know you He's probably effective. He has stuff to show for it. And I feel like he's having that experience too. You know, it's a similar kind of. Yeah. No, I, oh, think I need a thing. I need a, a calling. A, a lot of people, a lot of uh, rich people have that experience of being like busy bodies or whatever. And you don't know what your aim is or whatever. And so you do things to fill the time during the day or whatever. You know, you because you have no aim and you don't you're not making progress toward anything you do things in order to distract you from that fact or whatever or uh the misery of your situation or the the problems that you actually do need to solve about you know the idea of your situation yeah exactly and i think that that is yeah that's widespread and i think you know there's yeah, a lot of explanations why, you know, people do such things or whatever. Um, is the homelessness thing part of this? Yeah, well, the homelessness thing, that's interesting. I mean, I think you see a lot of people checking out of the normal system. And I think for reasons that are like, it's hollow. It feels hollow, I think, is that that kind of like thing he was saying. It's like this like listfulness, you know, there's something hollow about it. There's something 
missing. Um, and it's interesting because we mentioned that before too. And I, I think uh, that's the kind of story of our cities too. Is like uh, because I've had this thought recently because we talk about you know things being bad or whatever. And you can also think well, uh, things are like better than they've ever been. And in some sense they are, but there's also like. Well, if things are so much better, why do people feel so bad? And I think that that's the like, you know, the the rod at the core or whatever, you know, the the perfume on the coffin or whatever, the the you're know, the dressing up of something rotten. And I think that that's the we have a very aesthetic society, so to speak, like it's beautiful, but it's hollow. Um, and there's something yeah deep about that. I think. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's hard. It, it, this is an interesting thing. Like it's, it's difficult to figure out what to do when things are really easy. You think of like the idle rich and how many problems like rich, like trust fund kids have, you know, how like bizarre and weird they can become because when you're, when you're in a real place of hardship, you know what to do. If you're hungry, you have to figure out how to find food. If you have a kid and you're hungry, you got to figure out how to feed your kid. That's all that matters. And you're going to figure that out. You're not going to sit there and wonder if you should dick around with the third broken lawnmower in your backyard today, or maybe you should do this instead or that. It's like, no, I know what I need to do. I have a problem and I need to find a solution. When everything's really comfortable, it is a lot more difficult to figure out what you should be doing. I struggle with shoulds, anything with a should. Should I do this or should I do that? I ask my, myself that question all the freaking time. Maybe it's a, the wrong question. Maybe it's, maybe the right question is will. I don't know. You know, will I do this? Not will as in a question, but like will as in I will it. You know, like that's maybe how we should understand what we mean when we say these things. Like, because that's the truth. Will I do it if I will it? That's if I, you know what I mean? Like, that's mm -hmm. the truth. Like, if you will, if you do. And, you know, I was, because I was also going to ask the question to you, but the delay was throwing me off. Couldn't figure out how to, where you're actually pausing. But the, um, I was going to say, what is the cure for acidia? Like, what is the right, so what's the solution? Whether it's me or whether it's you or whether it's whoever. I, I actually, this is just a side note. You can answer that question, but I heard this little tiny clip today of this. I wanted to play it, but then it was like, I don't know who this is, but, and I looked, he was like a self-help guy, like a fake online self-help dude or something. Maybe he's legit. I don't know. But he said, if you were going to make a person and you wanted to make them patient, you wanted to make a patient person. You wanted to make somebody who's resilient. You wanted to make a person make them patient, make them resilient, make them effective, make them capable. How would you do that? What would you give that person? You would have to give them, to make a patient person, you have to give them turmoil. To make a, a sturdy person, like a, a competent person, you have to give them a hardship, to over, something to overcome. I mean, when you put it that way, like, you you're just you get to be God for one person. You make a person. You pick their situation. What do you give them? Like that's an interesting way to think about it, and a difficult thing to answer. And it's really stark for me reading this fourth turning book because it's all about the generations. And he draws this connection between your parents that the generation that comes from us another generation usually adheres more has more 
uh, let's say kinship with a, a separate generation. So like with the grandparents, you know, they'll have a kinness, a kind uh, a friendliness, uh, whatever the right word is with their grandparents more than their parents for some interesting mm-hmm. fourth turning kind of reason. But there's, there's something in all of these kind of this way of thinking. So I started with the question of what, how do you cure this idea? And then I was throwing out the idea of like, you know, imagine actually making a person, like how do you make a person that overcomes acidia, I guess is what I was saying. Yeah. Well, he says in that video, uh, Pacho, Jonathan Pacho, um, says, well, it's patience. Um, but yeah, to your point too, it's like, well, how do you cultivate patience? And partly it's like, maybe situational, like you cultivate it through hardship and turmoil and challenge. Um, But I think, yeah, it's almost like gratitude. Like, I think it's a practice. Like, people will point this out, that gratitude is not a natural instinct. Like, you're not instantly grateful. Like, gratitude is something that you practice and can be heightened the more you practice it. And I think you know, maybe the virtues have that quality that like patience is also like that. Like the more that you practice patience, the more you can be patient or whatever. Like I definitely feel myself falling into that um, because while I'm like an effective person, I realize I'm not a patient person. I think that that's the, you know, another, it's like you can have two forms of the sin of acedia. You can be an effective avoidant person, like where you're just really effective at making yourself busy. And that's still acedia because you still need to be the busy body. You still need to be stuck at work. Or you can have the ineffective form of acedia where it's like you're you're ter- uh, troubled by the form of ineffectiveness, the busy, you know, the need to be busy, it's like, but you're yeah, <laughs> overcome by your anxiety in it or whatever. And so it's like you, you versus me, basically. Like we're both kind of busy bodies, but you're busy body in a way that's beautiful looks different and I'm yeah. busybody in a way that's tragic yeah so I think it's like how do we it's terrifying yeah, to be honest how do we deal with it yeah and I think patience practicing patience yeah so I guess you because I guess you could overcome acedia even as like a monk I guess you could be someone who's like I'm gonna do nothing but this monk stuff which may look very idle but it doesn't mean that you're stuck in acedia because you're you're doing it. You're focused. You know, you're, you're present. Yeah. This is the calling. This is the thing. Like I'm, I, I'm focused on this thing. Yeah. So that's an interesting, uh, way of thinking about it. I've, I'm gonna read the uh, Twelve Rules book finally. Oh, which yeah. somebody bought me. Finally, who Kim I think maybe got it for me, but I need to read that because I want to become a better person, and I it's time to figure this shit the fuck out for me personally. Because I have no idea what I'm... I mean, I am so aimless. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, read the book. The last thing I wanted to say, though, is like about the thing you just mentioned is like the the presence or whatever, like focus. I think that's another way to increase patience is like meditation or whatever, like practicing being present. You know, it's like people, that's what the meditation is. It's like just paying attention, like the the practice of paying attention. And I think that that is something that has to be practiced and learned because if you don't, then you're just drawn, you're kind of like, like listless. Like that's a good word for you. Like you're kind of blown in the wind, like a tumbleweed in any which direction or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about that in that book and how to yeah. be aimful. And I wonder too. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember if it was Thomas Metzinger or if it was, maybe it was Noval Nova Harari, somebody talking about kind of meditation and what that looks like a lot of times. 
And one person described it as it was. I can't remember if it was Metzinger or Harari. Maybe it was neither one. I can't remember. Anyways, but they were saying that it's so hard, you know, to meditate. And he said this guy, whoever it was, saying that, you know, he he visualized or gave a visualization for what these like intrusive thoughts are in a meditative state, and he he made them into uh, basically like children like a, a line of children, then they all want your attention, all these thoughts. And you don't want to just reject them. Like that's apparently not the right approach, but you, you can pick each one up as they come, notice it and set them down and let them go on their way. And that you don't have to be disturbed by the, the stream of thought, but but notice them instead. I go, oh, this is coming. Now I let that go. This, oh, this one's coming. Oh, and now I, I let it go. Because it's so difficult, even for a practiced meditator, to like figure out why I can't, why can't I do something? Why can't I do nothing for five seconds? Why, why is five seconds or five minutes like it, I'm literally, my goal is not think about stuff constantly for just five minutes and you can't even do it. It's like almost impossible. It's, it's crazy. And another thing, this is Yuval Noah Harari said this, and I started thinking about what this would be like. And I'm like, damn, that would be something. And he said, he goes on these retreats and when he meditates and these thoughts come and he's like, you have to realize these retreats, you're just sitting there all day. And he's like, you think that the, you think the worst thing is going to be your ass, you know, like how uncomfortable you get just sitting there for 14 hours. He said, that's nothing compared to the pain of the thoughts that come everything. Cause all you're doing is thinking for like a week. You just, you're just sitting there letting thoughts come and go for a week straight. And he's like, the thoughts that will come to you will like haunt you. You know, like who you are emerges to you and like reveals itself to you. Events that have happened to you that you didn't even remember. Things that you said to people, ways that you treated people, ways that people treated you. The way that you are every day, the patterns that you don't even know that you're stuck in. The type of person you are versus who you think you are, who you want to be versus what you really are. And to to and I started thinking, what what would come up for me? Like, I don't know. I've never done it. But like, I know that part of my distraction, I think part of maybe everybody's desire for the endless distraction is that that reality actually is quite uncomfortable. And I get this feeling very, very strongly. This is ridiculous because it's just like a novel series, but there's this series of novels called Outlander. And it's just like some female kind of romantic fantasy, time travel-y thing. But it's set in like the 1700s. But the main character is so fairy tale. You know, he's so good. He's like the perfect man. And you just fall in love with this guy. You're like, he's amazing. He does everything about him is just perfect. You know, he's attractive. He always, he always is humble, always knows the right thing to do. He's never has the wrong opinion. It's ridiculous in a way, but but it's a fantasy. So it's okay. You just watch it. It's showing you something. And what I always get, like, so he makes this comment in one of the episodes recently. And he's like, basically the comment, something along the lines of like, I'm not worried about dying. I'm worried about you dying, but I'm not worried about dying. 
because mm. and I and it hit me. I'm like, well, of course he's not worried about dying because he's perfect. If you're perfect, you don't even worry about dying because you you're so anchored and sure of everything you're doing because you're a fairy tale perfect person that you're like, if I die now, I die righteously. If I die now, everything is as it should be. Almost like like so if I have to go to to war, because you know, the revolutionary war is about to happen and there's time travel, so he kind of knows the outcome, but he doesn't know if he dies. You know, he's like, I may die. That's kind of the vibe, you know. But I'm like, I'm ready because and he doesn't say I'm ready because I'm perfect, but you kind of get that feeling because you know him. You're following his whole story. You're like, Yeah, that's the ideal, that's the ideal man. Like that's the ideal version of yourself. Like I'm so who I want to be. I'm so righteous. I'm so excellent in everything. All my, even if I make mistakes, I'm trying, you know, I'm always, I'm always have the, the moral direction yeah. within my kind well, you of don't soul. have the regret or whatever. You can at least feel like I'm doing the things I feel like I should be doing because the right thing may look different for everyone, depending on right. who you are and your situation particular person you are and problems that you face but and it's like you don't even get it right you don't even know what the right answer is because you're not god but you try you know and you can feel like well at least i'm trying try. yeah i'm working toward what i think is right that seems like the opposite of the acidia it's like why am i so all over the place why am and i because i it stresses me out i don't want to be I want to be effective. I want to be on target. I want to be going the path, you know, forging ahead. And I think that's the self-licking ice cream cone. The less kind of, let's say, success you have or the less satiation you're getting from your endeavors, the more attention deficit you become. And it's I think that folds in again to what I was just saying about not having like everything being too comfortable, not having a struggle. So if you don't have a struggle, it's difficult to figure out the right thing. What is my aim then? Is it just keep going to work and just making money and then coming home and then going to work and then making money and coming home and then just doing this over and over and over again? It's hard to know. But the opposite of all of that is is kind of like knowing in a way, you know, knowing the general direction, the general reason, the raison d'être, the reason for being. And I think uh, I definitely see that guy, whatever that's Pajegigio or whatever his name was. Like, if I don't know if that's the, the whole show. problem, but that is definitely something that I feel like is definitely going on for a lot of people. Yeah, well, it's so telling, too. I mean, that it the, creates social media. Uh, sin of our or epidemic of our age has ADHD or whatever. And then, yeah, we have the uh, quote-unquote attention economy. It's like, what is the point of all of these technology companies is literally you are the product and your attention specifically is the thing that's being commoditized. So, I mean, it's just like, yeah. like... <laughs> that's so it, deep. It is. It's a weapon. I mean, it literally, social media seems a lot more like a weapon than anything else because I get this like desire because I'm like, I'm, I've, I've done work before. I could go do work. I don't know if I want to do work though. Like I used to do like behind a desk, filling out spreadsheets and all that I don't want to work. <laughs> it might be more lucrative than what I'm doing now. But I also like our parents are retired and we all joke about like, Oh, we'll have a farm one day. And I'm like, I would be happier unpaid making a farm operate, just making 
like a homestead work well than I would be filling out spreadsheets for 80 grand a year because I would know the problems. I would know what I'm doing. Like if you don't do this step, then the next step isn't doable at all. If you don't till, then you can't plant. If you don't plant, then you can't harvest. If you don't harvest, then you can't eat. If you don't eat, you die. You know what I mean? It's it's all so obvious. And like my being, like my internal self, like call is like cries out for like a a real thing to do, a purpose, a way to be effective. A, a you know, this is like me just exposing the lack of therapy here, but <laughs> this is, is an open therapy is. session. I oh. hopefully people can relate. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I mean it's a lot. It's hard. No, I think they can. But it's why you can do a difficult task and feel better when you do it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, anyway, I think, uh, yeah, I'll leave listeners with that because I don't know what's going on with uh, this delay. So, yeah. I just wanted to read this to you. We don't have to leave this in. I just wanted to like show you this archetype thing so you can think about it as you read some young. So this is the four archetypes. This says, perhaps no ancient people were as fascinated with the four-sidedness of nature as were the Greeks. By the time of Heraclitus in the 6th century BC, Hellenistic philosophers understood that all worldly phenomena are definable as two pairs of opposites. This belief gave birth to the theory of four elements, fire, air, embodying the opposites of hot and cold and earth and water, embodying the opposites of dry and wet. In Hellenistic cosmology, all matter was reducible to these elements and all changed expressible as a dynamic equilibrium between each elemental quality and its opposite. Okay, so blah, 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 some more Greek shit. Through the next two millennia, the Hellenistic paradigm dominated Western speculation about personality differences and disorders. During the, uh, the Renaissance, it spun off many words that readily entered the English and Romantic languages from sanguine, choleric, melancholic, phlegmatic, to humorous and temperamental. Then came the Enlightenment, which declared human nature to be conquerable. The ancient quaternities fell out of favor for more than a century, eclipsed by scientific medicine, experimental psychology, and Freud's theory of the malleable ego. In the current century, four temperaments have regained some of their former esteem. The turnabout came from the years around World War I, when a new generation of European psychologists revolted against positivism and made a fourfold thinking popular again. Uh, Atticans, or whatever the fucking guy's name is, wrote a four-world views, traditional, agnostic, dogmatic, and innovative. Edward Spranger wrote of four types, theoretical, aesthetic, religious, economic. Ernst, something, whatnot, and the other of abnormal temperaments, anesthetic, hyper, hyperesthetic, melancholic, hypomanic. In the 20th century best-known quaternity, Swiss psychologist Carl Jung wrote of the attitude types based on psychological functions, reason, intuition, feeling, and sensation. Jung's view, certain, in Jung's view, certain symbols, aspirations, and behavioral modes, archetypes, are biologically hardwired into mankind in all eras and cultures, he said, these archetypes have become so deeply embedded in mankind's collective unconscious that no degree of progress, real or imagined, could weaken their grip. 
identifying these archetypes by probing dreams and myths, Jung fashioned his theory after the ancient quaternities best represented visually by the uh, quadrisected Hindu mandala, which you just brought up recently. His four archetypal functions draw energy from the dynamic antagonism between two sets of opposites, thinking versus feeling and sensing versus intuiting. When one function dominates the psyche, its opposite is necessarily suppressed in the psyche, in the shadow. Past midlife, people become conscious of the limits of their dominant archetype and draw energy, constructively or destructively, from its shadow. Jung called this quest for life cycle self-correction individuization. Individuation, I mean. <laughs> um, okay, blah, blah, blah. Jung saw the hero myth as perhaps the most potent expression of his archetypal archetypes recurring in a wide range of eras and cultures. Like su- the Superman. Okay, so this is where it gets really interesting. Maybe I'll just send you these two pages because it goes through all of our archetypes, like our stories. And it's so interesting because we all know the hero's journey, but he's like, this guy pulls in like some of the other like non-heroes and then relates them to like our people. So millennials are heroes, I think. It's very interesting, but you can draw from, you end up drawing from your shadow after a certain time in your life, either constructively or destructively. And the theory on like how that creates culture and like the people that emerge from it is really bizarre. Um, I'll have to find it later. I can't, I can't find the actual list of like our personal, but I mean, literally everything from like Wizard of Oz to Superman, Snow White, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Lion King, who all the characters are like Rafiki, the nomad, the wise old man, the magician versus like the wanderer, all of these things. It's super interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, blah, blah, yeah, blah. cause that is, uh. He, I'll have to send you talk this. about this, this like squaring of the circle or whatever. It's so interesting. Well, this four, the four thing is weird. To, and that's Myers-Briggs, by the way. He brings up the Myers-Briggs test too. He's like, this comes, like we, even the fact that we do that, like that we come up with this test, like the Myers-Briggs, it's like, that's literally us like squeezing on our archetypes going, there's something here, there's something here without ever knowing that like we're drawing on this ancient tradition of understanding basically earth, wind and fire. Right, right. Like, or the four humors, like the four biles, like, oh, it's yellow bile and black bile and blood and stuff. And it's like, what? Like, how is this all clearly intrinsically connected? And we have no idea what we're doing, but we're finding it over and over and over again. But so I I put a star next to this. This is interesting. Another popular type of myth, that of the young prophet and the old king, is much the opposite. These legends tell not of the founding of a kingdom, but of religions. They invoke memories not of a world threatened by uh, dire peril, but of a world suffocating under mighty dynasties that have become oversecure and soul dead. They speak to the insight, not valor, of youth, and the blindness, the blindness, not wisdom, of elders. And then he talks about Abraham and all them, yada, yada, yada. The prophet myth reveals what Jung would call the shadow of the aging hero archetype. The hero is not seen through his own eyes, but through the fresh vision of the youth prophet, the one who sees that the emperor has no clothes, not of the emperor's own peers, but a child who dares to speak the truth. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so the prophet myth is the awakening era. You'd just find this book really fascinating. 